It is good to be with you this uh, morning, this afternoon, worshiping God with you and uh, meditating and considering God's word as we do so now, as I invite you to turn to Psalm 90, Psalm 90, uh, perhaps the only psalm written by Moses, uh, the man of God, the servant of God, um, the Avid Adonai. <clears throat> Receive greetings from Grace Reformed Church of Jersey City, where I am the pastor, Pastor Dan Ragusa being there today. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, thought it would be a good idea to, to swap pulpits for one Sunday after Synod. So Psalm 90, trusting you're there. This is God's word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed. In the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you this hour now, and we ask that you would speak, for we are listening. In fact, Father, do grant us a listening ear and a hearing heart, Father, to not only hear your word, but to know your word. And more than this, Lord, to do your word. To live in light of the reality of our great mortality and the futility of this life, but also, Father, more so in the light of your everlasting love, in the light of who you are as our eternal dwelling place. Help us now and Have mercy upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you living for? What are you living for? That's the question Moses is getting at. That's the question Moses is asking before us in God's word. You see, just above where we started reading, there's a subtitle in some Bibles. It's from everlasting to everlasting. Just above that, it says book four. Book four, we won't won't go through the entire book four of the Psalter, but book four is an answer to how book three ends of the Psalter. Book three ends in its lowest place, Psalm 88 is individual darkness. We're told at the end of Psalm 88, my closest friend is darkness. Literally, that's the last word in the Hebrew, darkness. 
And then in Psalm 89, we have national darkness. We have the sorts of things that we were called to trust in, perhaps, or that we thought we were supposed to trust in. The king and the kingdom of David and the earthly city of Jerusalem. And yet we're told near the end of that psalm, verse 39 of Psalm 89, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken all the walls of Jerusalem. You have given your people away to be scorned, to be exiled, to be made the mockery of the nations. And so what, what are we to live for? What is there to yearn? What is there to desire if life is engulfed in sorrow? And that, that is the question we have before us. Amidst the travails, amidst the mortality, amidst the, the suffering of life, what, beloved, are you living for? Moses here gives us perspective. God gives us perspective. This is the oldest psalm. It was written around 1500 B.C., a thousand years before the travails of the previous two psalms. And it's, it's stark and sobering. And yet it is hopeful in the very ends because it tells us that we are meant to live for God our true everlasting home. And that is the first point as we look at God's word in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. You are meant to live for Christ because only Jesus Christ is capable of sustaining your life because only Jesus Christ is your everlasting dwelling place. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. Moses there says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all Generations. Now, this is highly ironic coming from Moses. The reason why is because Moses is the quintessential pilgrim in the Bible. Moses never had an earthly dwelling place. He had no home here on earth. Forty years, his first 40 years, were lived in Egypt. You know the story of Moses. He kills an Egyptian man and has to flee Egypt. And the next 40 years of his life are lived in Midian. And then the last 40 years of his life are spent wandering the Sinai desert with the people of Israel because of their unbelief through no fault of his own. So, so what home does he have? Well, he says it here. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. No matter, no matter what may happen in this world, Lord, you are our home. We live in you. We live for you. Beloved, in this world, is it not the case that we are feeling, we are sensing? It's not, it's not merely a feeling. Let's be honest. There is an objective dispossession, disinheritance, a dislocation, an alienation that Christians who seek to serve the Lord are sensing, are experiencing in a world that is increasingly at odds with God. So what home do you have in this world? Who do we look to? As the psalmist says, yet who do we have in heaven and on earth but you, O Lord? It is Christ. It is Christ who is our everlasting dwelling place. We are pilgrims in this world, but we are at home in Christ. Only Christ is capable of sustaining your life. Notice what Moses says in verse 2 following. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Why is God our only comfort in life and in death? Why is God our only everlasting dwelling place? Because he's the great I am. Because he is. Because he is absolute permanence. For the Israelite, what would have been the most stable part of creation he would have looked out. He would have seen, well, oh, the mountains here, right? Mount Hermon, Mount Sinai. Even more than the mountains, perhaps the earth itself, right? The, the land under our feet has been here. The sand in the desert has been there for thousands of years. And yet, the most stable parts of creation, whatever those are for you, are nothing compared to God. Your mountains, the earth, compared to God, are but a pile of unstable dust. 
Because, you see, there was a time when the earth and the mountains were not. And there will be a time when the earth and the mountains will also not be. They won't exist. They have a beginning and an end. Well, what about God? What about the one true living God that we serve? That is never true of God, you see. God is without beginning and without end. God is. God is without time. He does not live in time. God exists from everlasting to everlasting because God is the great I am. People of God, God has been with you the moment you started existing in your mother's womb. If you are a small child, children, God is with you. God is with you. And perhaps most of us are not in the age of childhood in those stages early years of our lives, and yet God was with you even then. God was with you as a teenager. God was with you as a young adult. Maybe you are a young adult. God is with you even now. In your middle age years, in your older age, God always has been and will always be with you because God is your God. Because God is from everlasting to everlasting. See, here at the very outset, what Moses is doing for us as as this psalm is placed right after Psalm 88, Psalm 89, is is Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to, to strip our trust in all these other things that we can trust in. It's only God who is our refuge. The Israelite was prone to perhaps look at the human king, the, 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 the offspring of David, as the one hope of the nation, Horses, chariots, kingdoms of this world. And yet what Moses is saying here, what God is saying is, you must look away. You must look away from all those things, those earthly kings, as good as they are. Look away from David. Look away from the earthly city whose walls have been breached and broken in. Look away from all the glory of this earth and all the things that earth can proffer because you must look to Christ You must look to the kingdom of Christ whose founder and architect is God himself. That city that no man can destroy. That kingdom that's built by no human hand but built by God himself. You must look to the everlasting God as your only refuge. This is the everlasting God. But why are we to do that? What is it about us? What is it about you? That calls forth this trust in this everlasting God, the one true living God. Well, verse 3 through 6 tell us. That's how, that's who God is. God is everlasting. But what about you? What about us? Well, we're mortal. And that's the point in these verses, verses 3 through 6. We are utterly transient and brief. And, and the psalmist here, Moses, gives a number of illustrations to show this. Uh, There is perhaps no better term to describe man than the one given at the very beginning at verse 3. Look there with me in your Bibles. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. We are dust. We are like pocket lens. There's no better term to sum up the, the fleeting nature of life. We're made from dust. And what God is saying here is that your, your entire life trajectory, your entire narrative, the, the arc of your life, as, as high as it may be, as glorious as it may be, is but one journey back to dust, to the tomb, to the grave. This is who you are. We are continuing on. Our days are like a moment for God that quickly passes Verse 4, 4,000 years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. There was a time early on, right after creation, before the flood, when human life almost reached a 1,000 years. Four digits, Methuselah. It's the longest living man, 969 years. But even then, think, I mean, think about that. That's nine centuries, almost ten Even then, God is saying, human life was but a vapor compared to eternity. 
Our, day, our days are like a flood. They're swept away like a flood. In verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. More illustrations to describe what human life is. Are you getting it? Are you with it yet? Our days are swept away like in a flood. It, it, there's, no, there's no stopping the river of time. It just keeps flowing year after year after year after year. There's no amount of, uh, there's no dam that can dam up this flood. It just keeps flowing. As our response of him later on, we'll sing, Oh God, our help in ages past, written by Isaac Watts. There's a very very good stanza there that simply says, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. It's just an ever-rolling stream, time is. It's like a dream, even, as the psalmist continues. Now, you've had dreams, and they seem to be very vivid, are they not, at times, right? Dream of, uh, dreaming of a hamburger, right? And the hamburger's there, and it's, it's so great, it's so, it looks so delicious, and then you wake up, and, and, and the, the vividness of the dream is gone, and you know, let's be honest, some of us try to go back to sleep to, to confront the hamburger again, right? But, but our lives are like that, right? They seem so vivid and colorful when we've dreamt them, and yet they're gone when we wake up. They are like grass. In ancient Israel, grass would pop up in the morning. And then it would be gone. It wouldn't even be gone the next day. It would be gone later that day in the evening. You see, all of these illustrations are telling us that there is an impermanence, a transiency, a, a, a vaporness about life, an emptiness, a vanity. What the writer in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, would say is hevel. It's vanity in the Hebrew. We're mortal. We're weak. That's, that's just the way time is. What month are we in? Right? I know we're in November. No, we're not in November. <clears throat> we practically might be in November, though, right? We were just in summer. We, we had no suits or jackets or coats or scarves. We were, we were jumping up and down in the sun. And then it's gone. And before you know it, Christmas is here. And before you know it, 2024 is going to be here. And before you know it, you will die. Most of us, most of us live and labor in great obscurity, right? As workers, students, fathers, mothers. We, we live in a forgotten time. That's true of us, most of us now. We're not celebrities. There's nothing that we can do that will go viral Right? Hopefully, hopefully not in a bad way. That may be true of most of us, but it is absolutely true of all of us in the future. All of us will be forgotten in time. And this is usually in the span of three generations. Do the experiment on your own life. Test your own memory. Some of us remember our grandparents. However... How many of us here remember our great-grandparents? How many of us here have met our great-grandparents? And I dare say that may be true for some of us, the vast minority, but none here has ever met or can even name their great-great-grandparents. Beloved, the human mind and human memory will fade into the great ocean of oblivion and forgetfulness but only God will never forget you. And only what you do for God will remain. But even that will be remembered only by God. It will be forgotten by human history. And so the question we come back to again from Moses, from God himself is, how are you living? What are you living for? Beloved, everyone's building for something. Everyone's living for something. Is what you are building for something that the waves of time will wash away? Or are you building something that will last forever because it's something built in honor and for the glory of God in God's kingdom? 
It was said that after many military triumphs, Roman generals would ride into uh, an imperial city, sometimes Rome itself, on a chariot, and they would, they would ride into the city with great accolades and great triumph, with a great parade of people cheering on the Roman general. Long live so-and-so. And in that chariot, it was said that there would be a slave right next to the Roman general, whispering into the ear of the general in Latin, memento mori. Memento mori. Translated roughly is, remember that you will die. Remember that you will die. And you see, that's what God is saying here. No matter how glorious your life has been, again, no matter how how high the arc of your life has been, memento mori, remember that you too will die. So what are you living for? More on this in a moment. But we continue in Psalm 90. Why is it that we die? Verses 7 through 11. Why is it that your life is so transient? Well, God tells us, because we are a race under the curse and under the judgment of God. Uh, we need to be clear here, beloved, unless we misunderstand the, the full teaching of God's word, that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has conquered for his people, what they could never do for themselves. He has reversed the curse of sin and of death for his people. Our sins are forgiven by God. We're reconciled back to God by Jesus Christ. We've been given new life. We are now new creation, Second Corinthians 5. We have been given a new heart and a new nature, a new destiny, and we are assured the promise of the resurrection on the last day. And yet, And yet, not every effect of the fall has been immediately removed. Many effects of the curse of sin remain. We still get sick. We still sin. We're we're still weakened by life. We still suffer many travails. And to the point of the psalm here, we still die. God tells us we are brought to an end by God because of our sins. Verse 7. <clears throat> Verse 8, excuse me. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And then, and then God tells us what his wrath is directed to, right? He, he says it in verse 11. He is, he is wrathful. He is angry. Oh, he's wrathful against our sins. Verse 7. Verse 8. Notice what Moses is doing here. He's including himself as part of Israel. And he's also including Israel as part of humanity. Even as Christians, death is still part of our human experience. Being a Christian does not exempt you from the sufferings of this world, including physical death. Just look back one psalm. Psalm 89, verse 47 and 48. Remember how short my time is, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Beloved, every single person that's ever lived, that is alive, or that will ever live, has died or will die. Every single one, without exception, there is a ceiling on man's life. Verse 10. It's not 969 like Methuselah. Verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. 70 years. If we make it that far, some of us make it to 80. But even then, it's, it's a life full of toil and trouble. Even if we could live a long life, right? Even if we could white-knuckle our, our, our grip on life for a few more years, who would want to live until they're 90? I think, who's the Guinness World Record holder 
uh, for longest modern life, you know, it's like someone in Japan, right? A guy in Japan who's like 120 years old. But, but what is his life marked by? Who would want to simply hold on to that life? No doubt Moses reflects on his own experience with God's people. And, and, and there's so many instances in Moses' life that can serve as the backdrop of this psalm. Moses was a man, think about it, surrounded by mortality and death. God said because of the people's unbelief, everyone 20 years and older will die. If there were two, I mean... We won't do the math here, but you know, consider that there's probably one to two million adults who fall in that category who have to die over a span of 40 years. How many funerals a day is that? How many burials a day is that? Wandering the desert in Sinai. And here's a man who is surrounded by mortality and death. Oh, I actually have it here written down. It's about 500 Israelites uh, per week. And some commentators think, That Numbers 20 is the backdrop of this psalm. Here, Aaron is told that he will die, and he soon does die. Aaron, who had been his older brother, his his mouthpiece. You know Moses, you know the story. He was a man who was afflicted greatly by a a stutter. He didn't know how to speak. The, The man of God, the servant of God, had a stutter. And Aaron is appointed by God as not only his older brother who would help him, but who would speak for him before Pharaoh, before the court of Egypt. And here, his older brother, who has been with him for 40 years, helping him, aiding him, assisting him, God takes away. And then later, in the end of Numbers 20, God says, Miriam too will die, his older sister, who had been with him from the minute, the the days of his earliest life here on earth guiding that little basket down the Nile River so that the daughter of Pharaoh could see and save this little Hebrew boy. Miriam as well, gone. And then, the epitome of it all, Moses. Moses is told for all of his obedience, for all that he's done, yet he has has not earned the right to to enter the promised land of Canaan. And he too will be kept back from Canaan because of his sin. You see what Moses is saying here is, if you think your travails are new, they're not. God's people have been suffering and have been suffering under God's discipline in the wilderness for a long time. And that's incidentally the point of Hebrews 3 and 4. And the, the, the point of the book of First Peter, we're in the wilderness, we're suffering, and yet God is with us. But you must know what God is capable of and what he has done. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers God's anger and the power, the fierceness of his, of his wrath? The answer is no one does. We don't pay attention to our mortality as a race, perhaps even as Christians. We we don't pay attention to our own sins because we don't pay attention to God, His holiness, His fierceness, His wrath. The fierceness of God's power bends all of humankind in the same direction towards the grave. If this is who we are, though, beloved, if we are a race that is under the curse and judgment of God, how then shall we live? What hope do we have? Well, verse 12 and following tells us what we are to do, what we are to live for. Verse 12, so teach us. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is the first request made of the Lord in this psalm. All, all the psalm up to this point has simply been descriptive. This is who you are. This is who we are. But here Moses says, and we are to say, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to gain a heart of wisdom. God is everlasting, beloved, but not you. 
Not me. We are finite. You are limited. And so you must call out to God. You must learn to call out to God that you may learn how to order your life in Christ the right way because it is Christ alone who created you. It is Christ alone who knows how your life is meant to be lived to serve him, to build in his kingdom, to be about those things that will last forever, gathering treasures in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal what what time, old age, and death itself cannot ever take away. Teach us to number our days. What are you consumed with? Once more, we come to that question. What are you consumed with in your very limited time on earth? What are the most important things to know for you? What are your priorities? What are those things you say, well, I can't, I can't live without this. I, I have to. I got to do this. What have you devoted yourself to? See, what God is telling us is that we have to be reoriented away from ourselves, away from from the sorts of things that consume us, and be reoriented back to God, back to wisdom. And what are the lessons of wisdom that God teaches us? Well, there are a number of them. We don't have time to go through them all. But consider these lessons of wisdom that God teaches you, that you are meant to learn, that you may live in wisdom. First of all, you are to know the brevity of life makes you understand that you are not unique. Let me, let me go through a number of these very quickly here. If you have your Bibles open, all right, keep them open. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. There is no more sobering book about the vanity and the futility of human life than this one. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 and 11, it says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Yes, in a certain sense, you are very unique and special. I want to make that clear, all right? So you don't hear from the guest preacher, you're not special, you're not unique. No, you are. You're made in the image of God, you are special, all right? And yet, Ecclesiastes checks us and says, In a certain sense, you're not. In a certain sense, you're not special. You're not unique. This has happened before. We are the latest echo of human history before God's eyes. And when you you learn that lesson, you gain a heart of wisdom. You understand that you are meant to live for Christ, not not to make your, your dent in the world or, you know, some cliche like that, but you are to live for God, knowing that your work is not in vain. And yet you're not flattered, you're not self-flattered with fantastical notions of who you are or what you are. Looking at the end of Ecclesiastes, knowing the brevity of life leads you to offer God your life now before a life full of regrets. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. The years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then it goes on to list how our bodies break down right before the the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Uh, Verse 4, before uh, the doors on the street are shut and, and so on and so forth. Right? You are to love God. You are to serve Christ now in the spring and summer of your life with your vitality And this is a word especially to you who are younger, especially to you children who who get to know the Lord now in your earliest years. It's a word for you who are in your adolescent age, for you who are teenagers, for you who are, you know, young professionals. Love God now in the spring and summer of your life before the fall and winter draw near. Give God your very best 
Give God the years of your youth and every subsequent age. A third lesson that we are to learn as we seek to gain a heart of wisdom, look over at Luke uh, chapter, well, I'll, I'll summarize it. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Excuse me, 1 John chapter 2. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The, the whole lot of it, Jesus is saying, is, is passing away. Every, every single part of it, it's passing away. And, and in Luke 12, we're told of a very poignant story of a man who built for things on earth, right? He had a, a farm and he said, man, I, I've had such a great harvest. I, I've had such a great yield. Surely I could do more. Surely I could, I could busy, busy, busy myself with all these things related to good things. These, these are good things, right? We don't want to be idle. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be voluntarily poor, right? And yet his life was consumed with building, storing, accumulating wealth here on earth. And what does God say to this rich fool? He says, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. It is not rich toward God, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. I had a friend many years ago who wasn't from the U.S., and he came to a wedding and didn't realize that there was such a practice oftentimes of having a cocktail hour with appetizers. And he got so full of the appetizers, right? And then when we were invited to the main room, he sat down and we all sat down and it was time to eat the full course. But he'd been so full of appetizers, he didn't realize that the best was yet to come. Is this us? Is this you? So full of this life, not realizing that there is yet a supper to come. The best is yet to come. The world that God has prepared for his people, the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. Only those who do the will of God will remain. A fourth lesson. The brevity of life motivates you as we, as we are learning to count our days. The brevity of life motivates you to hope for the last day of Christ's return, to have a future orientation. Second Peter chapter three, verse eleven and following. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right? Because the elements will be burned away. Peter asks, "What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day?" of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our hope, beloved, is not on anything here that's mortal, that's, that's sandy, it's shifty as sands. Our hope is in the Lord and because we want to see Christ, because we expect to be with Christ, the apostolic teaching is simply put, what kind of people must you strive to be? What kind of lives must you live now? And there are many, many more lessons to take stock of. But beloved, returning back to Psalm 90, you must take stock of your life. The teaching of Psalm 90 is that you will die tomorrow. How does that change your life? How should that change how you live? And that's not an exaggeration. We, we will all die tomorrow. We just don't know when. We are to, as verse 12 says, ask the Lord to teach us to number our days, to know how brief we are, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But secondly... How are, the, how are we then to live? We are to, secondly, ask God for mercy in verses 13 and following. In verse 3, 
God returns us to dust. But in verse 13, we ask God to return to us, to have mercy on us, to pity us, to satisfy us with his steadfast love, that we would rejoice and be glad however many days God gives us, that we would be contented in him. The psalmist here doesn't lead us to ask for more years. That's not a bad thing to ask, that God would prolong our lives. But more to the point, God teaches us to ask for his mercy, to ask for his love, to ask to be satisfied, and to be rested in him. That in this transient life of sorrow, we would be glad in Christ for who he is And for what he has done, however many days Christ gives us. Augustine, in his confession, says very famously, you have made us for yourself. You have made us for yourself. You you have, beloved, a God-shaped hole that that can never be satisfied. It can never be filled with the things of this world that that are mortal because, you see, as Ecclesiastes says in another place, God has bound eternity in your hearts. You aren't meant for the things of this earth as good as they may be. You were created by God. You were created for God. So Augustine continues, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And is this not what we confess in the first Heidelberg uh, question and answer? What what is your only comfort in life and in death? Note that it doesn't say what what is a comfort? What is one of many comforts? No. It's your only comfort. Jesus is your only fortress, your only refuge, belonging to him, not to your mortal self. We are homeless, to paraphrase Moses. We are homeless in ourselves, but we are in our everlasting home only in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then finally, we are to ask God to teach us to number our days. We are to ask God for mercy. We are to live in Christ. But thirdly, verse 16 and 17, we are to ask God repeatedly, time and again, to establish the work of our hands. It can seem very dour, very down, very dark to talk about death, to read this psalm, but but here you see Moses does not end on a dour note. He, He does not end with a sort of fatalism, a sort of determinism, right, that says... Well, we're going to die. Just wait around for our death. No, not at all. Yes, without the Lord, human life is futile and empty. And any endeavor you can put your minds and hearts to, that you can devote your life to, is worthless if the Lord does not establish it. The futility of life doesn't mean that we don't work, that we don't build, that we don't produce. No, rather, you see, what God is calling us to is to humility, asking that Christ would bless all of our endeavors because of who we are, weak, and because of who God is, everlasting. You see, we ask God for his mercy to have pity on us. In the words of Psalm 127, God Build the city even as we labor to build it. God, you must do it. God, watch over Zion even as you have called us to watch over your city. God, you must do it. And here, what is the work ahead of Moses? What is still yet before them? It's the conquest of the land of Canaan. And so what Moses is saying here is, yes, we are mortal, life is futile, but not in you, not with you, not through you, O Lord. So establish the work of our hands. The conquest is in front of us. Egypt is behind us, and we won't ever succeed if you do not bless us. Beloved, our good works and what we have sought to build for Christ continues after you're gone, after I'm gone, after we're all gone, only because God has established it.
the faith of your children, right? Young children, we oftentimes worry about them. We pray for them. We are, as Paul says in Galatians, we're at pains until Christ is formed in them. We want them to be stable and secure in life. We want them to own the covenant for themselves. And what gives us hope, beloved, as you parent, as you train them in the little years, is that God establishes the work of your hands. We're talking about a Christian school. Elder Santana prays for it. And we work towards that end. And, and, and what hope is there, right? That this school will be established. And at some point, I wish it would have been established, you know, yesteryear, but that's all right. It's in God's time and in God's way. But what hope do we have? What strength, what encouragement do we have? That God establishes that work of our hands. What, what hope do we have for anything that we contribute to, to, to any Christian institution that we've helped develop? That God establishes the work of our hands. Who built the great cathedrals of Europe? They're beautiful. They're awesome. Do we know any of their names? The great buildings that still stand because of men who gave their lives in service of something that outlived them. And if they did that for something that is earthly, how much more shall we do it for Christ's church and work for the kingdom of God that will never perish or fade away? And that's why we say, that's why we believe in our bones, the word of God in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. None of us here is called to build a cathedral to God or simply called to, to chisel a stone in the great cathedral that is God's kingdom. But beloved, you must do it knowing what you're doing. It's said that one of these stonemasons 800 years ago was asked, friend, what are you doing? Well, I'm chiseling a stone day by day. Okay. Hmm, interesting. And then the stranger went to another worker and said, friend, what are you doing? And the man, you see, had a biblical perspective. He said, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. Well, what are you doing? You're, you're changing diapers? You're getting stuck in traffic trying to meet people for coffee, for encouragement, for small groups? What are you doing? Of course, you're doing all of those things. You're suffering all the travails that fallen life offers, but you need to understand what else you're doing in and through those things. You're building, you're helping, you're co-laboring with Christ to build the cathedral that is the kingdom of God. You're living a life that is prepared for eternity. You're leading your family to do the same. Yeah, you might be working and laboring in obscurity, but you're doing it for the glory of God because your work is never in vain. And God takes your work. God takes your labors. God takes all that you are, all that you do, as he has redeemed you. And he uses your efforts, meager as they are, for his glory, for his honor. We are mortal, but God is everlasting. And as long as God has given you life, you are here to work and to build and to do all of this in service to God. Because what you do, beloved, counts forever in God's sight. Because God establishes your work. And so, beloved, don't live a life of half-hearted service to God. Don't live a life of half-hearted service to the church or to the kingdom of God. Don't live a life filled with distractions, with ice fishing. I have a friend who talks about men going and loving the life of ice fishing, right? They, they go off, 
drill a hole in the ice and fish for ice. It seems nice, but it's a, it's a pious distraction that helps us procrastinate our duties, that helps us delay our obligations. Don't, don't love ice fishing, beloved men. Be about the things that build up this church, that build and advance the kingdom of God committed rooted, settled once and for all in God's truth with a joyful witness, encouraging others with truthful, repentant lives, cultivating a distaste for sin and what dishonors God and cultivating a love of the eternal and the everlasting God and his commandments and what pleases him. And may the Lord Jesus Christ establish our mortal lives in him our everlasting God. Amen? Let's pray. Good and gracious Father, how kind you are to have saved us and redeemed us through the body and blood and the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, although we are weak and mortal, although our outer man is Fading away day by day, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Help us, Father, to not trust in ourselves. Help us, Father, to not build upon a mortal foundation. Help us to build our lives upon the only foundation that is capable of sustaining us. The Lord Jesus Christ and his promise and his word. We thank you for his great love for us, that undeserving as we are, he has made us partakers of the kingdom of God. He has made us your children. And Father, that we are called now to the high and holy privilege of testifying with our lives of the great power and the exclusive salvation found in him alone. So help us, Father. Help us to that end. That as we labor, as we suffer under the travails of life in this fallen world, even under the travails of your discipline upon us, that we would do so, Lord, with great contentment and joy. That we would do so, Father, always, always looking to you, our everlasting God, and to your everlasting promise. Father, fill our hearts with hope to the future, Fill our lives with strength for the present. And Father, may we run this race with endurance. For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our great Savior and King. Amen.